Thank you, Brother Blake, for that nice introduction. Thank you, Pastor, for allowing me to preach in your pulpit. It's always a, uh, a blessing and an honor to be asked to uh, preach in your home church. And I thank uh, my pastor for th this opportunity. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk, guess what? It's Christmas time, so we're going to talk about Christmas. Sorry, I couldn't wow you with something wild, but this, this is an interesting verse. It's not a verse that we, we, uh, most people think about Christmas, but this is our memory verse last December. And when he gave us uh, this verse, I thought, man, that's really got a lot of stuff in it. It's great. It just goes through the whole thing. So I've only got about five or six or seven pages here to go through, so we all <laughs> hope you don't have any place to be tonight. I can't see what time it is back there, but it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, so is there, raise your hand if you remember the December Christmas verse from last year. Anybody? Just remember what it was? The address? No. Okay, well, it was this. It was Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now that's just, that's so short, but man, when you dig into the Word, there's so much about this. So let's get into it. We're going to talk a little bit. But when the fullness of the time was come, the fullness of the time. Now, you have to understand that the Jews had been told that they were going to have a Messiah. It's interesting when we read about it, though, that the Jews weren't, didn't seem to be looking too hard. It was the wise men that came from the East, okay, that were looking for the Messiah. The Jewish priests weren't. The rabbis weren't, the head of the, they weren't all looking for the Messiah, but the wise men came, and that we hear about that in Matthew 2, because they had been told by Daniel. Now, the fullness of this time was predicted in Deuteronomy. Moses, uh, God was speaking to Moses, and he told Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, he said, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And Jesus said something similar uh, when he said, uh, I didn't come here to judge the earth right now. You know, you don't have to receive me. But he said, but, he said, but you know, those who don't receive me will be judged by the words that I have spoken. Which is just, re just reiterating right here what was said in Deuteronomy. And then later on, in, in Daniel, we had the uh, prophecy of the uh, 70 weeks. Now, some people aren't as uh, aware of that, but, but basically God showed unto Daniel in several different prophecies the history of the world that was going to unfold. Um, he did this through several different uh, stories. Uh, one was the, the idol that had the head of gold and the chest of silver and the thighs and belly of brass and then the legs of iron and the toes of iron and clay. And they had another one of the, the four beasts that were going to rule. Earth. And these were all four worldwide uh, uh, empires that were going to rule. But in this one, he's speaking specifically to the Jewish people. And he's telling them, he said, there's a timeline for y'all. I'm dealing with y'all during this, this, because here they are. Now, uh, Daniel was in Babylon. He had been taken away with the first wave of captives that were taken out of 
Jerusalem. And so these were like royals. These were like princes and things. And he was taken and he was put into the uh, uh, king's service. They trained him for three years. And then, of course, uh, he was found to be the, the smartest and the brightest and the best of all of them because he had purpose in his heart to serve the Lord and not to be defiled by anything that was there in Babylon. And, of course, and throughout Daniel, we see how he and his uh, young men that were with him grew up in that system, and yet they would not bow down and worship uh, their idols. They would not be subject to that. And we need to be aware of that because, folks, that's coming. We may be coming to that today sooner than we'd like to, to think. But anyway, so he's talking to them about, the, but he's talking to Daniel, and this was the vision that Daniel had, and he says, this is the key. It's in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 26. It says, Now 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, that's Israel, the Jews, and upon the, thy holy city, that would be Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now the most holy is, of course, Jesus Christ. Uh, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and, and two weeks. And for those of you who don't add real fast, that's 69 weeks. Okay? So from the time that this order to go forth and to build, to build, uh, to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah was supposed to be 69 weeks. Okay, well, 69 weeks, that's a little over a year, you know, so it's going to be pretty close, right? No, the, the weeks were weeks of years. So 69 weeks would be 69 times 7, which would be 483. Because 400 and, uh, it's 400, because it was 70 weeks to tie up the whole thing, and that's at the end. But the 69th week was, was on the precise day that Jesus Christ came in to Jerusalem, and, and, and it was right before he was crucified. It was right before the Passover, and we call that Palm Sunday. And they all got together, and they said, Hell, you know, the king, the son of David. And uh, the people were happy to see him. And that day was prophesied. And uh, the wise men that Daniel had, had been part of, that group, that group knew of these things that Daniel had said. And so they knew, okay, well, if it's going to happen during this time, uh, this guy's not, he's not going to be born and then be doing this the next day. So it's got to be born a little bit before. So they were looking for that sign. And that's why when they saw the sign in the east, they knew that the king of the Jews was going to be born. And they said, and then they saw that star and they, they went. They went. So they were more... They were more concerned about who was going to be the king, the Messiah of the Jews, than the Jews were. Anyway, and then he describes that, uh, that know therefore and understand that uh, from that will be three scorns, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after three scorn, after three scorn, two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Um, so he's talking about the coming of the Messiah, and he's also talk, talking about now three, the three weeks, 
three score in two weeks. There were seven weeks. That seven weeks was the time during which they were building the walls. They got there, but they never built them from the going forth. And so then they were told they could go back and build, build the uh, temple, which they did, but then they never did the walls for 49 years. It, that's all in Nehemiah. But uh, anyway, that's, that's an interesting thing about it. But this, this fulfillment, this prophecy was fulfilled. Now, the thing is, if this was the only prophecy fulfilled, it would be pretty amazing. But the thing is, the thing is that Jesus Christ fulfilled 333 separate prophecies. Now, the thing of it is, is that if you, if you take, I think, nine of those prophecies and you figure out what the mathematical possibility is, it gets up to be like one in um, times one times ten to the seven or eighth power pretty quick, which means that there's no way that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. It's mathematically impossible for anyone else to be the Messiah. He fulfilled every sign, all of them. So we know, without a doubt, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel. And he, then we find out, is, uh, came, and even when he first came, uh, Mark came, and he, this was Jesus Christ, Christ in Mark 1.15, said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. He came preaching the kingdom, which what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is where he is going to rule on earth. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom with the Jews. But they rejected him at that time. And at, the, at, the, at that time, and then he was crucified, and then he rose again on the third day, as we know, which is the foundation, of course, of all Christianity is the resurrection. But the thing is, is that he was saying this time is fulfilled, and it was. And that's it's just saying, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, and He sent it. Now, it's very important how He sent forth the Son. It, the Son, the sending forth, and that it was going to be God's Son was predicted in the Old Testament also. Of those prophecies, uh, I'll give you a couple here uh, that Christ fulfilled. And... In Isaiah 9, 9, verses 6 and 7, this is famous. But thou, no, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it henceforth, and establish it with, with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, that's this child and this son is not a normal son. Is that describing anybody you know? Any, any child you've ever seen or heard? No. This is God Himself coming to us in the form of a child. This is the prediction. And then in Beth Bethlehem, it also tells them, and this is why I don't understand, and this is the thing is that's unfortunate when, when uh, you're witnessing to Jews, is that well, we, the Jews sometimes will say, well, we could understand if you just said Jesus was a, a prophet, that he was a good man. But when you try to make him God, that goes too far. But wait a minute. Your scriptures, are you ignorant of the scriptures? Well, yes, they are. Because they study commentaries. They listen to what the rabbis say. They don't go and read the Bible. Listen. 
This book, this book is a great resource, friends. We can go and, what's in this book? That's not what's in some commentary that's important, but it's what's in this book. Because, you know, if all you ever read are commentaries, you're not going to know what the Word says. But then you come to this and you say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. This has got to be God Himself in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the flesh. And in Micah 5, 2, this confirms this also further. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet shall he come forth. Yet shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old and from everlasting. So his goings forth have been from of old and everlasting. Now wait a minute. So his goings forth have been some. He is basically he's everlasting. Now, okay, I want you to name all the people you know that are everlasting. I only know one, Jesus Christ. So this was foretold. God sent His Son. He foretold it. It's in there. If the Jews try to deny it, you can. Get, these are the verses that, that you go here. If you ever have, if you ever have to witness or get the opportunity to witness the Jews, say, "Well, you know, your your own scriptures say that in Isaiah." Now, this is important too, because you know God. You know Adam, when he came, he wasn't born, was he? He was made out of the dust of the earth. And God breathed life to him. You know, God could have done that with his son too. But he said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Because there were some other predictions that were made that said that he was, uh, and we'll get to this in a minute, he was made under the law. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. But he was, he was going to be made of a woman. And there were specific reasons for that under the law. Because he is supposed to be an heir of David. He is an heir to the throne of David. Okay. And so, he must be born of a woman. And the first, the first, now the interesting thing of that is, of course, well, good grief. Can you name anybody that's not born of a woman? Name all the ones you know. Oh, wait a minute. Today, uh, well, I forgot. Today, no, only women. They may say, you know, deluded people can say they're whoever. You know, when you're deluded, you can, you can call yourself whatever. I can call myself a Harley Davidson, but that doesn't make it so. Okay? Genesis, the first, the first clue that we have here is that I will put enmity. This is Genesis 3.15. And he, at this point, he is rebuking the serpent who has caused Adam and Eve to sin. And he's speaking to that serpent who we know is Satan. He's not speaking, you know, to some just snakes. He's speaking to Satan. He said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Have you ever had, you know, I, you know, I think most of us in here have had biology, somewhat. But do we know how many women have had seed? The women don't have the seed. The women have the eggs. And even back in the day, they knew this. They, they weren't ignorant of how babies came. It wasn't like a, some kind of a mystery. They knew it. As Mary events when she said, well, how can this be since I know not a man? I'm going to be with child. Uh, well, I, you know, I've never known a man. How can I be with child? They said, well, the, the Holy Ghost will overshadow you. And that's basically, I believe, that it was a new creation in her body. 
like Adam was because there was no DNA from Mary or anybody else in there. It was a creation by God. That's my belief. Because otherwise, he would have inherited the sin nature through uh, Mary. But he didn't have that sin nature. He was like a new Adam. He's called the second Adam by uh, Paul in some of his writings. And they said this, and then in Isaiah it was predicted, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's great. You know, but how many, uh, you know, and then of course, of course, the, the real bright people at colleges and everything, they always get there and say, Well, we know that virgins cannot have babies, so this is just, you know. But they don't know God. No, virgins don't have babies. But with God, all things are possible. And if, and if he wants to make it so, he can. The one that made everything that we see, he's not, he's not constrained. He spoke everything into, into being. He's not constrained. The problem with people is that we cannot imagine our imaginations, our thoughts are not big enough to imagine a God, our God, the way that he is. That's why any, any image or representation of him is a blasphemy because we, God cannot be contained. Our God is not contained. Our God is not, cannot be put in a place because he is everywhere. And he, by him all things consist. And in Matthew 1.23 it, uh, it talks about this being fulfilled. Okay, in, in the Christmas story. This is being fulfilled. It says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Which was also a memory verse that we had a, couple, a year or so ago. Okay, now, the, second, uh, the third phrase of this is that he was made under the law. Made under the law. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. I find all this stuff, these are all kind of details and stuff, and I, but I, I'm a detail kind of guy. I like to know how all things relate. I like, like to know how things come together. Now, he was made under the law. Well, this was important because you can't have somebody that's not qualified. Okay, you can't have somebody that's qualified. If Mary was from a different tribe, Jesus could not be the Messiah. He couldn't be the king. If she wasn't a Jewish woman, she, he could not have been born of a Gentile. But not only could he not be born of a Gentile, he could not be born of, of somebody who was not of the tribe of Judah. And not only could he not be born of somebody who was of the tribe of Judah, but that had to be born of a virgin. So that leaves a lot of the tribe of Judah out, doesn't it? So it had to be a perfect person, the time and the place. And it couldn't be somebody that's been married for five years because, you know, that's not going to happen. That, they're usually not virgins after five years being married. But the thing is that uh, this is important for a, a couple of reasons. Because, because the Messiah was predicted to come uh, of the, uh, that the scepter in Genesis 49.10, it says, the scepter, that is, the rulership shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Now Shiloh is an epitaph for the Messiah. It's a substitute for that. And, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. 
Now that was a promise and a prophecy. And David then made a, uh, David then was promised, a promise by God, and this is a covenant. As a matter of fact, it was a covenant that God made with David. And this was an unconditional one. He didn't say, well, now, David, if you do this and you do that and, and your people do this and they do that, then this will happen. No. He didn't say that to David. He said, David, I have chosen you and I have decided, and this is, this is, this is important. This is from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 17. He's talking to David. And it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy, with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these covenants, or all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now that is the Davidic covenant that his throne should be established forever. And uh, if you go through and you look at some of the other uh, scriptures that relate to all that, which we don't have time to go through tonight, but th there are several of them in scriptures. But it speaks of how, uh, you know, uh, Jesus, this is the question that shut up the Pharisees. They were asking him all these questions, trying to tie him up and wrap him up. And he said, well, if the, you know, if the Messiah is to be the, the son of David, how then did David call him Lord? In the Psalms. And they went. Do you know? Do you know what you're talking about? No man dare ask him any more questions after that. Because he stumped them. Every time they tried to stump him, he got out of it. And he asked them this question, and they said, Boy, well, we can't ask him more questions. This guy, this guy's making us look like fools. We can't, we don't know. Because David, because Jesus was the Lord that David was referring to, and, uh, and Jesus Christ is the Lord that will sit upon David's throne. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a little secret out there in Christianity that most people don't seem to focus on too much anymore, but Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back again, he's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back with an army out of heaven. Not that he needs an army. We're just going to be spectators. It'll be like a big... Anyway, I don't need to get off on that. I'm looking forward to that. Getting on that white horse, brother. I'll be looking for you. So, but now the thing of it is, <clears throat> back in the day, um, there was a bit of a problem. There was a bit of a problem. The devil thought that he had this figured out. I mean, he had a king that was so bad. There's a king's, the, the kings of, of uh, Israel were so bad there at the end that God put a curse on the last king. 
I'm going to read this to you. He said, uh, Jeremiah 22:30. He said, Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no, no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling up any more in Judah, spoken by God of King Jeconiah, Jeconiah, also called Caniah. No man of his flesh shall sit upon the throne of David forever. What do we do with that? Well, I'll, I'm going to show you here in just a second. But that seems to end the line. Well, you know, that, that was the kingly line. The kings all came out of that line. And usually, you know, whenever one son, it, they come down and you've got, you know, you've got to have a legal uh, authority. That means your father somewhere back there was that. Well, God takes care of that. And that's why, that's why in, in Christmas story, you know, I don't know if you ever noticed, but when you read Matthew, there's one genealogy. Okay, but when you read Luke, there's a different genealogy. And people, you know, the skeptics have said, well, how can this be? It's all, you know, one genealogy here, and one genealogy. Of course, they don't know what the story is. And, but let's look at why this was so. Now, in Matthew, uh, Jesus is introduced to the Jews as a Messiah, and he introduces Jesus to the Jews as the son of David the father of the kingly seed of Israel, and as, and as the son of Abraham, the father of the physical seed of, of Israel. And, uh, of course, God made two uh, separate covenants with David and Abraham, and these were unconditional covenants, okay, which is why that we know that God made promises to Israel that were never kept, but they will be kept. You see, if our God doesn't keep promises, that would make him a liar, and then he wouldn't be our God. He wouldn't be the God that we know. God always keeps His promises, which is a good thing, okay? It's a good thing if we're doing good, because He makes some promises. He promises if we don't do good, good things aren't going to happen. But if we do good things, good things, uh, then He will bless us. Okay. Anyway, Matthew's record uh, traces 41 names of full forward from the line of Abraham to Jesus, and it traces the line from David through his son Solomon, and it records the legal line, the line Joseph. This was the line that Joseph came from. So in Matthew, you have Joseph, Joseph's line. You have his genealogy. Well, now, why is that important? Well, it's important because Joseph had the legal right to be the king. You, you, the whole thing is, that God's, He is concerned about particulars. God does not break the law. Now, He does miracles. He might break laws that we think, but He does not break His law that He's given to man. And so, Joseph has the legal, but Joseph is not his father in the, in the sense that he fathered him, but he is his father in the sense that he, Jesus, was Joseph's son. So, it's just like if uh, someone has a son, if they're married, if, you, uh, if a man marries a woman who's already uh, uh, is with child, who's already pregnant, 
and they get married and he knows she's pregnant and then that child's born and, and he claims that child is his. Well, then, then that child is his and he has all the legal rights that a son has to everything that the father had. Okay? And whatever the laws of the state or the nation in, that son has legal rights. And that's what Jesus Christ had. So he has a legal right. He inherited the legal right from his father, but not the bloodline. Now, because see, the bloodline, in Luke, we learn about Mary and Mary's bloodline. And in, in, in uh, Luke, he goes all the way back to Adam. And it goes from... Uh, Mary, uh, Mary backwards through, uh, through 71 different people. It traces the line backward from Jesus Christ all the way to Adam. I mean, it's really pretty interesting when you, you read it and, and you see the people that are in there. But he introduces Jesus uh, to the Gentiles as a son of man. And he introduces Jesus to the Gentiles as the son of Adam, the father of the human race, and the son of God. So he is the son of man. He's the son of Adam. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. And Luke traces the line through, uh, from David through his son Nathan. And then uh, this is the uh, bloodline of Mary, and this is the bloodline. So he was born of a Jewish woman who had a bloodline that went back to the royal, royal seed, okay? So on both sides, so by blood and by law, Christ has, a, has that claim to be king. Now we know he's the king, but this gives us, it's interesting because God was taking care of these details. Okay, he was ensuring that he was following the law. So this is when it says, made under the law. It sounds like, oh, just made under law. Four words, but that's a whole lot of explanation for four words, isn't it? And the, uh, the two separate uh, genealogies solve the Catch-22 problem, the curse of King Jeconiah, because the royal line of Christ had to follow the line of the Davidic kings, but this curse states that none of Jeconiah's physical seed would ever inherit the, the throne. But the line of Joseph legally preserves the royal bloodline, while the line of Mary, uh, uh, the royal line, but the line of Mary provides the bloodlines of David. Okay. Made, that was made under the law. Now, now um, this is, where are we at? To redeem them that were under the law. Now, the thing of it, the thing of it is, is that it, I hope, I mean, the preacher was, was, we were preaching on the show, Christ went to the cross. You know, he, was the, he came to be the perfect man. He came to be the perfect example of a man living under God's authority. You know, let, let, let's look at, if we look at Jesus' life, he was a man, that, as a man, he prayed all night to his father. As a man, he obeyed everything that the father wanted him to do. As a man, he kept all the law. All the, he fulfilled the law. He was the only man in all of history who could have or would have been able to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the whole law. And then he went to the cross 
the perfect Lamb of God, without sin, without stain, without anything. Now, you say, well, if he was so sinless, why was, why was he crucified? Why was Jesus crucified? Because he was crucified because the Pharisees hated him. That's why. He was crucified for political expediency. He was crucified because they didn't want to lose their place in their nation. He thought this, they, they thought that he was some other person. They saw his miracles. They saw what he did. They heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw him heal thousands of people. And yet they didn't believe. They didn't believe. Because they're too concerned about their place and their standing and say, well, we are righteous before God and this man's a sinner. Oh, wait a minute. Christ said, who convicteth me of sin? And they looked, when they had the trial, they looked for someone to confuse him, but they couldn't find anyone. And finally, you know, they were like, the, the trial of Jesus was totally illegal under the law. They weren't, it's, it, I don't know if you've noticed today, folks, but we're getting that way in America. They ignore, they prosecute who they want, and they ignore who they won't. If you're on a certain side, oh, you can get away with anything. But if you're on another side, oh, one little thing, and we're going to hammer you. And this is what happened, was the politicians said, Jesus has got to go. Of course, this was all, God knew this was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. Jesus knew this was going to happen. This was the purpose that he came here for. But he was crucified. He said, uh, tell us. You know, they said, tell us, art thou the Christ? And he said, thou sayest. And that's why he was put to death. Because he said, because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of God. That's why we put him to death. Because he told him the truth. But when you tell the truth to people that don't want to hear the truth, they're likely to put you to death for telling them. Okay? That's why Jesus Christ was put to death. Now, so he went to the cross, and he was nobody, you know, nobody took his life. Jesus gave his life. Nothing, does nails did not hold him on the cross. The love of Jesus Christ held him upon that cross. His love for you and me and the whole world Uh, Hebrews, uh, what is it, 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Do you know what his joy was? You. Do you know what his pleasure is? To see us do right. We were made to please God. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were and are created. We were made for his pleasure, for Jesus Christ for sinners to be saved. That's the joy that he had, that we are all going to be with there with him in glory because of what he has done. 
and how his he has redeemed us, and by his grace we may come, all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Titus 2.14, it says, sums this up, he said, who gave himself for us that he, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So let me tell you, if we are not considered peculiar, then we are not doing something right in our Christian walk. If people don't think you're strange, then you need to wonder if you're really a Christian. If you're going along with everything and nobody knows that you're a Christian, you are not peculiar enough. He called us to be a peculiar people, not somebody that goes along with the flow, not somebody that goes along with the crowd. And we need to be zealous of good works, which is to do those things that are pleasing to God. There's lots, you know, we could talk about works, but we are appointed unto good works. We don't do good works to be saved. We don't do good works to stay saved. We don't do good, good work. We do good works because we love God. The same reason that you do good things for your family, for your wife, for your husband. Because you love them. And they're the most, they're important in your life. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And now at the end we get to the adoption. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Now this is, this is another interesting thing. Now I don't know, we don't think, you know when we think of adoption today it's a little different thing. But back in the day it's interesting because there were two kinds of adoption. Because he was speaking, you have to remember, he is speaking to people. They were in a different culture than we are. He wasn't speaking about how we do about adoption today. I mean, if you want to adopt somebody today, it's tough. You want to find a baby, an infant, or what? Back in those days, it was not tough at all because people were dying of disease. They were dying of starvation. They were dying of all kinds of things. Bad water. They get a cut. They got an infection. They died. It was not unusual for children to lose both of their parents. There was no physician that really knew what to do about anything. They didn't have antibiotics. There was no drugstore to go to to get a, a, a pharma, pharmacological aid, some kind of a pill to take to overcome there. You just get, wake, you get a fever, three days later you're dead. Death was everywhere. They were much more close to death than we are. Because there was not anybody in your neighborhood. If you lived in a small village, you knew people had died. You knew pe people, you probably knew kids whose parents had died. But now, in the Jewish system, the Jewish system, what they did was they would take in these children. So let's say my brother's children died. Your brother's children died, or my brother's children, or, didn't, or their parents died. The children of my brother and his wife, my sister-in-law, they died for whatever reason. Now they left their children. In the Jewish system, you always needed workers, so their grain, the more the merrier. Now it's another mouth to feed, but you brought them in, you nourished them up, and the goal was then to get them back because that land that was their father's, if they don't grow up, they can't have it, and then his line is cut off. So with, with, with the Jews, it was about preserving their bloodlines and about preserving you know, their people and was about taking care of one another. 
And so it was very common for them to, to, to take in orphans in Israel. You didn't have, you know, gangs of orphans because normally the families would take them in. Now, of course, if everybody, all the adults in the family died, then kids could be in tough shape. But, uh, you know, but we see this in, uh, if you re remember the story of Esther, you remember the story of um, oh, Ruth, how Ruth went back and, and married Boaz. See, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, and he was supposed to marry this uh, Ruth and raise up a son and give that son the name of the father who had died. Okay. And then all any other children that she had were theirs. But the first son had the father's name. And that's the way they did it. And then also we saw in Esther how uh, the queen, the eventual queen Esther, was raised by her uncle. So this is, this, but this is what they did. They didn't do it because they were trying to get it. Now, the thing of that is, it's hard of a, for us to remember, we have so many programs and this and that, or whatever in America we have, but they didn't have that in those days. There were no social programs, there was no social security, there were no orphanages, there were no nothing. So you're seven years old and your parents die you got the clothes on your back, and maybe if you, you, you probably don't even know how, you might, be able, you might be able to make yourself a few meals, but you're not going to be able to take care of yourself. And this is life and death. You're poor. You got, you got the clothes on your back, you probably don't even have shoes. And if, and if you grow up a little bit, you know, if you don't know where your relatives are, you're going to be in tough shape. But generally, somebody would take them in because it was the right thing to do, and that's what they were told to do. This is very important, is that they not oppress widows and orphans. God hates that. So anyway, the Jews are supposed to, to do that, and they also take care of the strangers. Now, but in the Roman world, it was totally different. In the Roman world, what they did was, you know, I've got three or four sons, and maybe one of them's really good, but he's not, the, he's not the first son. So normally they did it, but the Romans, they didn't care if you were the first son or not. They, they chose the best. If you were the first son and you were a bum, they would emancipate you, which means you no longer have any legal rights in this, son, in this family, son. You're on your own. Hit the road, Jack. You're emancipated. You're no longer part of the family. Therefore, you are not the heir. And then, then they could either adopt one of their other sons to make, and then choose him to be the heir, or a lot of times these people didn't even have sons. Now, you may not know it, but uh, arguably, arguably the best Roman emperors were adopted and became emperor. Because a lot of times these adoptions were not done as children. Oh, the Romans, they didn't care. If you were an orphan, tough luck. They didn't care. They had no compassion. They had nothing. The Romans, you know, in the cities, they had no, they were orphans running all over. They had to, could do whatever, uh, but the state had no interest in orphans. And if you didn't have a family that would take you in, then, and even if they took them in, they weren't part of the family. And they didn't do anything for them to provide for them. They weren't obligated in that way. See, that was 
that was our God that put those provisions in in Israel. He said, you take care of orphans and widows. Okay? And do not, do not uh, oppress them. But anyway, arguably their best Roman emperors were adopted and became emperor. These include Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, and Marcus Aurelius. For those of you who love the Roman uh, history, but those were all, all uh, Roman emperors who are considered among the best who were adopted, not as children, but as adults. And when you were adopted then, even if you had a wife or children, when you were adopted, you came into that man's home and now you were there and your family stayed over here with your other family. The different system. But this, their system was about the transfer. It was about, it was about legality of the transfer of my wealth. Let's say I'm a wealthy man. I've got, let's say I'm Bill Gates. I'm not, but let's say I am. I should be doing something different with my money than he is, but okay. But let's say I was Bill Gates and I have no children, which I don't know if he's got children or not. But let's say he doesn't, and he decides, you know, I want to leave all my money to somebody that's going to do some good with it. So I am going to choose out myself a man that I think, you know, he's got a track record. He's 30 years old, he's hardworking, he's done this, he's smart, he's, um, you know, He's got all the right, he's done all the right stuff. He's not a drunkard, he's not a druggie. You know, he's, uh, you know, he uh, fits in with people, he's sociable, he's not, whatever, whatever his criteria are for someone to take over his cash, he could say, I'm gonna adopt you. I think a lot of us would probably volunteer for that. Hey, adopt me, Bill. I mean, that'd be wonderful to be adopted, but, 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 but consider. We have somebody better than Bill Gates because we've been adopted by God. Legally, this gives us our legal right. You know what? The Bible speaks of an inheritance. And this, this adoption gives us the right to that inheritance. We, in First um, Peter 1, Verses 3 to 5. I'm just going to read 4. Uh, well, no, I'm going to read 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which hath, according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us. He made us, begotten us again, <clears throat> unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you and you and you and all those who are His, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Boy, I love that. I've got an inheritance. I've got an inheritance. Why? Because I have been begotten again. How's that? What is that begotten? I've been made alive. John 1, verses 10 and 13. He was in the world. This speaking of Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God they're speaking about. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. And He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them He gave power to become the sons of God 
even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we have been born again. We are like that little child. You know, in this world, you know, even the rich people, you know, Bill Gates is a pauper. You know, you think Bill Gates is something? No, Bill Gates is nothing. Compared to my God, he is nothing. He's nothing. He's not even like the small dust of the earth. I mean, if you had a bucket full of dust, it'd be like a moat in that bucket. He does, he's nothing. But if he's saved, then he becomes a son of the Most High. And I would much rather be a son of God than have ten times the money that Bill Gates has. So you think of that. We were all like orphans. You realize that we are all born dead, spiritually dead. And it's up to us to put our faith in Christ, become alive. Okay, I'm going to close this up with 1 John 3, 1 and 2. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not. Ah, the world doesn't know us. That's why I say, we're peculiar. You're peculiar people. You're peculiar people. I'm peculiar. I hope I'm peculiar people. That's what I want to be. Because it knew him not. Beloved, now, now get this, folks. This is important. When are we, uh, beloved, now, today, now are we the sons of God. We are not waiting to become the sons of God. We are the sons of God. And we need to start acting like that in the way our testimony, in our words, in our thoughts, and in our actions. Because we are the children of God. And when other people see us, we reflect on God in our actions, in our business, in our lives, in our interpersonal lives, and, and in our relationships with one another. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to uh, bring forth a Christmas message, Lord, that uh, is short in, uh, in words, but deep, deep in theology, Lord. And to thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just that he was born, Lord, but that he came and lived that perfect life. And he died in, on a cross to pay for my sins with his own blood. And to be raised again. And now he sits at the right hand of glory and is waiting to come again. And we pray thee, Lord, that he will come quickly. Father, we thank you for your blessings upon this church. We thank you for the blessings of the season. We pray, Lord, that uh, we can be a light and a testimony wherever we go and in all we do and say. And let us do all things for your honor and your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.